It's uh, great to be with you, and uh, as I said to some of you as you were coming in, this is a, a 400-level course. Uh, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't think when I put it on the agenda that there would be a, a huge turnout because this is something that's very specific to healthcare management. We're going to really be talking about governance and management and discipline and, and all the rest of it. We're going to start on a little more humorous note. Look at some of these. Alton attorney accidentally sues himself. <laughs> Volunteer search for old Civil War planes. I wonder how many of those they found, planes from the Civil War. Army vehicle disappears. An Australian Army vehicle worth $74,000 has gone missing after being painted with camouflage. <laughs> Statistics show that teen pregnancy drops off significantly after age 25. <laughs> Duh. Federal agents raid gun shop. Find weapons. Wow. Country, county to pay $250,000 to advertise lack of funds. Uh, caskets found as workers demolish mausoleum. Duh. Ten Commandments. Supreme Court says some okay, some not. Uh, the point of this is this. It's important to know what you're doing. And obviously some of the people who wrote in these newspapers or some of these stories, they didn't. And one of the greatest challenges, I think, in missions is that most of us uh, that go into this area from a medical point of view are very well trained. Uh, we know our medicine. We have excellent training in nursing school and medicine or wherever your profession is in that healthcare field. And you get to the mission field, wherever that may be, this, this side of the pond or overseas, and it's not enough. I can do a great C-section, but it didn't help me at all in managing a hospital that ultimately had 400 staff. And uh, I found out very quickly that the fact that I was a good doctor didn't help. One of the problems you deal with if you have poor management is ultimately you have poor morale. People do not like to work in areas where there's poor management. When there is not clear understanding of what they're supposed to be doing and things aren't working well, it's one of the major reasons uh, that people leave employment, they get frustrated. Uh, it's a major reason for conflict, uh, misunderstandings between departments, between individuals. Uh, it just, you know, really uh, is the root of all sorts of problems when people don't have clear expectation. It's one of the most common reasons for leaving the field. It comes right down after burnout. I've just got so much work I can't do it, but often it's combined with the frustration of all these problems, all these issues, all these conflicts, and a lot of it comes down to just the fact that there's not being good management of the community health program, the nursing school, the hospital, the clinic, whatever. Uh, all of them need good management. Combined with this is often you go to be the doctor, the nurse, the pharmacist, or whatever, and find out very quickly that things aren't working well, and guess what? They've just been so excited about your coming because you're going to get to figure all this out. <laughs> and uh, you're thinking, where in the world do I start? And uh, it's a huge issue. Success in, in medical missions, whether it's a program or an institution, is directly related to the ability to manage it well. And most of us have had little or no training. That's what I found when I arrived on the mission field. Uh, I was the third doctor in a hospital with uh, averaging 200% occupancy for the year. We had three doctors and six nurses that had any training. And we were averaging in a 130-bed hospital 200 and some patients all the time. And we didn't have clean water. We didn't have enough of this, that. We didn't have electricity 24 hours a day. We, had, we, we didn't have clear understanding what people's jobs were. There was conflict at times, just all sorts of issues. And uh, I began to realize very quickly that management was going to be the key to success. Uh, the fact that I could practice medicine well was a given. And we're going to start, and, and some of for you, some of you might want to tune this part of it out. Maybe you're not working in a board situation. I'm thinking of an institution. But often there are uh, uh, the good management starts at the governance level. The governance is the group. It may be the church. It may be a board for your hospital. It may be a council. It may be, I don't know who it might be. 
but it starts with the board through good governance. We're going to spend a little bit of time there, and then we're going to get into some management skills. Now, let me give a, um, uh, a, a declaration to you before we start. There's no way in one hour I'm going to teach you how to be a good manager. My goal is in one hour to create a hunger in you to be a good manager, a good administrator, good in governance, and to point you to some resources specifically written for those in missions to help you take it to the next level. And uh, because we have one hour, and obviously you're not going to do all of it in that time. Let's talk just a little bit about the board and the governance group. This may be, you know, for some of you may not be applicable because you don't have one. But for those of you that do, it's very important. And they have a number of duties. They develop, evaluate, and improve governance. Boards are supposed to make themselves better because there's no one over them. They select, dismiss, supervise, evaluate, and compensate the CEO or the medical superintendent or the director of the nursing school or whatever it may be. They have that obligation to supervise one person. Boards get into trouble when they try to supervise more than one person. They supervise the person in charge. So they select them, they dismiss them, they supervise them, evaluate them, and they compensate. They nurture and encourage uh, both the CEO and some of the senior staff. They maintain major standing policies. Major standing policies are the policies, too many boards work like mother may I organizations. In other words, the CEO or the people in the organization have to come to the board and say, please, can we do this? That's not how boards are supposed to work. In fact, that really causes problems in being successful. So our board at Tenwick, at the hospital where I was, I met two or three times a year, and we helped them to understand that their job as they begin to learn it, because they never had any governance training, was to set the fences. Any of you ever live on a farm? Yeah. How's it work without any fences? Not too well, right? The cows are out in the road. We actually had cows kept on, I mean, horses kept on CMDA property. Farmer, we had 55 acres of land. We said, sure, yeah, you, you know, he had kept his horses over there. Put up electric fence. Electric fence kept going off, and the horses got out on the four lane. Wasn't really good. And so the board's job is to set the major fences. And they don't tell the CEO or the person in charge what they can do. They tell them what you can't do. They're supposed to put the fences. You cannot run this hospital into debt. You can't treat the staff unfairly and not pay them adequately. You can't tells the CEO what to do. And then they turn to them and say, now go get the job done, stay inside those fences. That's what good governance is. It's a policy-driven board. I spent this morning training a, a, a board group within CMDA helping them understand that, that that is their job. And so they maintain the major standing policies. They help develop and improve and monitor the strategic plan. Um, when I came to CMDA, for example, they never had a strategic plan in the history of the organization. So how are they going to measure how I was doing? Uh, where were we going? Were we just going to what happened today? So... We had never gone through strategic planning process. The board really wasn't ready for it. So I sat down, wrote a strategic plan, took it to the board, and they go, wow, that's great. And a strategic plan has, here's our mission. Here's what we're about. This is the yardstick we hold up against everything we do in this organization. The, everybody in the organization should know the mission. What is the mission of your organization? So the mission of CMDA is to motivate, train, and equip Christian doctors to glorify God. That's the yardstick we hold up against everything. Somebody comes to me and says, I really think CMDA should sell Amway. It can make a lot of money. No, that really doesn't work very well against our mission, which is the ruler we put up next to everything. They set the vision. What is it going to look like when we accomplish what we're trying to do? When our mission is finished, what will it look like? For CMDA, our mission is transform doctors transforming the world. It's not a slogan. It's what it looks like when we get there. And if we're successful in accomplishing our mission, they'll be transformed doctors. They will be transforming the world. Whatever you're doing, you need a vision. What's it look like? That's what galvanizes people. Health for all by the year 2000. Remember that one? It was a vision statement. That's what it was going to look like if they accomplished the mission. Uh, secondly, they set uh, the values of the organization. That's in your strategic plan. What do I mean by values? These are the key ways we will act as we accomplish our mission. 
I'm not going to take you all the way through strategic planning, but that's part of it. How do we act? Uh, you know, it's not just a fact that we're going to accomplish the goals. How are we going to treat each other? How are we going to? And so if you come to CMDA's office, you'll see our eight values with scripture versus reference to them of how we are. Because when you join our family, that's how we expect you to be when you become a member of CMDA. We had values when I was at Tenwick Hospital overseas. Then they begin to look at the key result areas. What are five or six things that tells us we're actually accomplishing our mission? Then under each of those key result areas in the strategic plan, you put goals. We're going to have this major goal. Now, in our key result areas, they're divided into, I'll just give you examples here to help you, and I'm kind of getting away from my notes here, but we'll get back to them in a minute. Key result areas is we're about transformation, so that's one of our key result areas. We're about service, that's a key result area. We're about equipping, that's a key result area. We're about voice, and, uh, and then we are about capacity building. In other words, building the organization to do the job better. Those are our five key result areas. And then all our goals fall under each one of those. And so we have goals for transformation. We have goals, and goals are broader. And, and they, they have a, you know, a, a, a little vision tied to them of what you want to accomplish. Under goals, you put your objectives. An objective is something that must be dated and quantified. So when I do a strategic plan, we just finishing up one at CMDA, we had 250 measurable go, uh, objectives. Every department knew, and we rolled all that up, and this is exactly what we're going to accomplish. By September the 30th, 2010, we will complete 40 of these or 20 of these or you know some way that we measured uh, that's going to help us accomplish the goal. So your objectives fall under the goal, and then you have that as part of the strategic plan. And uh, that's what a strategic plan looks like. Now then, the board monitors my performance based upon staying within the parameters that they developed. I'm the CEO. And secondly, am I accomplishing the strategic plan? So I can work inside these vences. Here's what we want you to do. They've agreed to it. Now, when you do this normally, you would get your board involved, the governance involved, and you come together and work on a strategic plan and get to where are we trying to head, where we would like to be three years from now, five years from now. Then every board meeting, you evaluate and look at that plan, and you change it because the world never stays the same. So you may find some objective that, wow, we just tripled that in the first three months. We thought it was going to take three years. We need to change it and make it bigger. You say, now this isn't working. We need to ditch this one. Here's a new opportunity, and we're going to head this direction. And you take that to the board, and the board approves it, rolls it into the strategic plan. So in this type of system, you have a dynamic document, a roadmap. How many of you have GPSs? Why? Because you've got to get where you're going. That's what your strategic plan is. Your strategic plan is the roadmap to where you want to go. If you'd gotten in your car to come to Louisville, if you were driving, and had no idea you wanted to get to Louisville, how many of you would have turned up here? Not many. But often in organizations, there's not a clear understanding of where we want to be a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, and uh, and, and really have. Secondly, if you're in the person that's in the operations, administration, CEO or whatever, heading a department or whatever, it gives a great sense of accomplishment because you come here and say, yes, we did get this objective, that objective, this objective. So it gives those who supervise you, especially in the governance end, an opportunity to say, great job. So one of the things the, goal do, the board does is help develop, approve, monitor strategic plan. Deferment mission, visions, and values. Situational analysis, that's part of strategic planning. What's going on in the world that's going to affect us? The economy in Kenya is going down the, the tubes. We've got tribal conflict. That's part of a situational analysis. And you do that with what we call SWOT analysis. SWOT stands for strengths inside our organization, our weaknesses, things we don't do well. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough money. Those all may be weaknesses. Our facilities are worn out. We don't have enough space. Whatever. These are weaknesses. O is opportunities. What opportunities are in front of us that we can look around and say, wow, you know, the council here just decided we need to double the nurses in this country in the next five years. That's an opportunity. And then T is threats. Threats. They may throw all the missionaries out of the country. It's been in the newspaper. They're pretty unhappy with us. That would be a threat. Right. So as part of the strategic planning is to look around and understand where you are, what strengths you have, what weaknesses you have, what opportunities, what threats. That's part of strategic planning, and the board helps do that. 
and looks at the situation. Ensure financial solvency and integrity in this country, and, and uh, you have to meet IRS requirements, uh, Evangelical Council financial accountability. Uh, but wherever you are, you have to ensure financial solvency and integrity. You know, my biggest burden when I was full-time on the field running a hospital was trying to keep everything from getting stolen. Anybody been there? I sit around trying to think up systems all the time. We computerized Tenwick back in 1988. You know why? Because nobody knew how to cheat with a computer yet. That's the main reason that the business office got computers, and I wrote the first program so that they couldn't do some of the things that have been happening in the past. So helping the, the board through the administration has the responsibility to ensure the sheets aren't walking out over the fence, people aren't stealing medicines, you know, and all the other things that go on. You and I both could sit here and tell stories for quite a while, I'm sure. Uh, they represent the organization. They volunteer and give. So the board has a number of duties in having a good board. One of the most critical things. How many of you have boards? How many of you am I talking about? Okay. The most critical thing you can do with a board is teach them what their job is. When I came on at the Christian Medical and Dental Association, the board was a mess. We were having three-day board meetings, and they were deciding whether we were going to buy a copy or not. Stuff that they had no business spending their time on, and they were not doing. And it wasn't because they were dumb people. It wasn't because they didn't love the organization. It was because nobody had ever taught them what it meant to be a board member. So we brought in somebody to train the board. Okay, now when we have a new board member come on, they get board orientation before their first meeting. Every board meeting we have continuing education for the board to remind them what their job is. Guess what? The board is so happy because they're doing what's important and they're not trying to do administration. I'm happy because they're not trying to do my job either. So these type of things, when you try to help the board, is to really take them through that. Board size, too small. Let's just go some through this, some of this quick since only a few of you have boards. If you get a board that's too small, it lacks diversity, knowledge, experience, and perspectives. It gets into a rut. It can be an old boy, an old girls club. Too much for too few to do. You get one too large, you can't manage it. Committees take over. The executive committee runs the board. It's unwieldy, lacks personal relationship, ownership, difficulty in functioning, difficulty in communications. So boards normally should be 10 to 17 people, uh, depending on what you're doing, and sometimes a little bit larger, sometimes a little bit smaller. But this is a group of people that are very dedicated to what you're doing. If you have the right board members, the right things happen. You have the wrong board members, the wrong things happen. So you have to make sure you have the right members on that board. How do you find them? Well, what should they bring? Board members should bring one of five things, and better than that, more than one of five things. Work. Some people are just the worker bees. Uh, I serve on the board of a college here in Kentucky, and I'm head of the governance committee. I, I bring work to that board. I do a lot of work to help that board work well. Wisdom. People that just are good decision makers and uh, understand and can get to the bottom of problems and make right decisions. Wealth. Ooh, I'd like to have some of those on the board. Uh, I remember I was up speaking at a college in Ohio, and uh, they were talking about starting a school of pharmacy. I was having lunch with the president. I said, well, how are you going to fund that? And he said, oh, i got a couple people on the board. It's going to be about $3 million, and they're just going to underwrite it. I thought, ooh, I wish they were on my board. Um, you know, there should be some people on your board that bring wealth. And some that bring whammy. What's whammy? Whammy is that they have a reputation, they have networks, they have the ability to draw people in, to introduce you to the right people. They may know people with money. They may know people that have knowledge that you need in, in your ministry. And so when you look wherever you are serving overseas, these are the, the four or five things, four things that you're really looking for. Uh, on a board member, and they got to bring one of those. It's not, I just know somebody, they make a nice guy, or we're going to get somebody that has this title or position. They should be bringing something to the board. How do you select them? You give them formal orientation when you bring them on. I talked about that, where you've been, where we are, where we're going, try to get them up to speed. You welcome them. You mentor them on boards. When we have a new board member come in, we appoint a board member that's been there for quite a while to be their mentor for the first year. They sit beside them during the board meeting. So what happens is something's being discussed, and they're thinking, what in the world is this about? I don't understand. They can lean over. This is the person they go to to ask questions and become more informed and mentors them uh, as they come on. Uh, you want to utilize new board members, get them busy, get them in their discussion. When I orientate new board members, I say, I expect you to be comment, commenting and getting into the discussion from day one. We didn't bring you on just to sit here and listen. We need your wisdom. 
You evaluate your board members. That's interesting. Uh, the board member actually goes through an evaluation process, and so are they doing a good job, how they can do better, and that often comes at the end of their term, towards the end of their term. It's good to have term limits and re-election. Uh, I've been on boards where there aren't term limits, and you got people you wish there were term limits, right? I was talking to somebody today, and they said, ooh, I've got a couple people, and one of them's got one more meeting, and one's got two more meetings, and I'm so glad <laughs> because they it caused more problems than they've been worth. And so terms, limits, and the opportunity for reelection lets you deal with issues and rec formally recognize, especially with volunteers, is important. So board officers, you have somebody at this chair, and that person's very important. They protect the integrity of the board process. They organize and conduct the meetings. They're non-voting except at a uh, deciding vote when there's a tie. They speak for the board. They invite guests and presenters. They interpret policies to the CEO. We have policy fences, and I may have a situation I don't understand exactly. What's that mean? Well, the board chair is the person I call and say, interpret that policy to me so I know how it applies to this situation. They select committee chairs and members. They are ex officio members of all committees, sign appropriate documents, link with the constituency. So chair does a lot of things, very important. You want to select the right one. It can be through an election, an appointment, whatever, how you do it. And term limits even for your officers with assessment and feedback on their performance. Committees. Committees enable you to get a lot more work out of your board. If everybody sits and discusses every problem, uh, somebody may have an interest in finance. The other person could care less about finance, and they don't want to sit there and listen to all these numbers. So you have people that have a business background or uh, accounting background that you've got on your finance committee. You have someone else that's on your governance committee that's helping make your board better, helping design your bylaws and your board policy manual and all that kind of stuff. You may have people on a strategic planning committee, but you have committees to do work for the board, and bring uh, their recommendations to the board, and then the board actually makes the decision. So committees extend what you're doing. Very important. Uh, expedite the board work. Better utilize members' expertise. More intense focus. You can get a lot more done. So when we have our board meeting at CMDA, we break up into committees. Everybody goes for two or three hours to committee meetings. They do their work. They bring their reports to the board, and the board can get a lot more done in a shorter amount of time. Uh, they staff help them develop their agendas, and there's a staff member that works with each committee. Official minutes are recorded and filed. Now then, let's talk about board hats, and this is an important concept if you'll ever work with a board. Uh, too often, board members think that they wear their governance hat all the time. This guy's got three hats on. It's not very comfortable and doesn't look very good. Uh, but you have three hats that you wear separately. You have in a board the governance hat. The governance hat is one that you only wear when it, you have your legal authority, and that's when there is a properly called board meeting with a quorum. And that's the only time that your board member actually has authority over you, CEO. Decisions are made as a group and supported by all. When you get in that meeting, you can have all the discussion, disagreement, what you want, but when you walk out, you don't walk out and say, well, they voted for this, but here's what I thought. That will destroy you, your board, very quickly. Decisions made as a group, supported by all. It's your governance hat's never worn when you're working alone. It's only worked when there's a quorum, everybody's in the meeting. Yeah, this governance, your, your board member cannot walk up to you as the CEO or whatever it is and just say, I want you to do this. Well, they can, but you don't need to do it because they don't have the authority to tell you individually what you should be doing. They only carry authority when the whole group is together and, uh, and CEO is accountable only by decisions for the whole board. So that's a concept where it's very important the boards understand. Then they have what's called an implementer hat. It gives limited authority to a board member. It's seldom worn because the staff uh, do most of the implementation of board policies. It's worn when board policy or structure gives limited authority to a board member. We're putting together a task force, or this board member, we'd like you to form a task force and look at dental ministries within CMDA, and we want you to bring back a report. They have given specific authority to a specific person for a limited period of time, and it carries implementer authority. I'm, uh, I'm a chair of a governance committee on the board, so I interview, interview all new board members, potential board members. They have given me the authority to do that. I wear my implementer hat. Most of the time, your board members wear your volunteer hat. It carries no authority. It's what you wear when you're not in the board meeting and you're not wearing your implementer hat. 
and it's uh, it's the you know worn when you're advising the CEO, worn when you're fundraising, worn when you're assisting staff under their supervision. I have many board members that are involved in CMDA, for example, and they may be working in global health outreach or helping out with this ministry, that ministry. They carry none of their board authority with them when they do that. They're wearing their volunteer hat. And, uh, and so helping board members understand these different hats is really key to making things work well. One of the most important things for a board to do is what's called the board policy manual. And the board policy manual is where they put down all those policies, all those fences that they've put in place, and it's all, all of them are there in one place. It's efficiency of having all gone, ongoing board policies in one place, ability to quickly orientate new board members, eliminating of redundant or conflicting policies over time, ease of reviewing current policies when considering new issues, proactive policies to guide the chief executive officer, models of approach to governance that others may want to use. Board policy manual is actually a 15 to 20 page document. I could show you the CMDA board policy manual. This thing transformed how our board worked because it made them think as a policy organization versus a mother may I organization. And so they tell me in there what how it in there is the first third of it. Here's how we operate. Here's how we're uh, organized. Here's how we function as a board. Second part of it is here's how we select the CEO, compensate the CEO, evaluate the CEO, et cetera. Third part of it is here's how we put all the parameters in place of how the organization is supposed to operate. It's reviewed at every board meeting and it's modified at most board meetings. And so it's one of the major tasks. There's a template, and I'll recommend to you, write this down, Robert Andriga, A-N-D-R-I-N-G-A. And he has written extensively on nonprofit boards. It's an excellent book. And uh, we brought him in to train our board at CMDA a couple times, uh, and he's excellent. And Bob Andriga has got a new book out. I don't remember the title of it. Just put it into Amazon. You'll see him come up and get his latest book. Um, CEO can draft this using the templates that are in that book, and it process really forces better governance. Uh, so how does that work? Well, there's articles of incorporation if you're in this country and maybe in another country, bylaws, and then under that you have your board policy manual, and under that administrative policies and procedures. So we have the board policy manual sets the big fences, and then I come in and set the smaller fences around my staff with my staff policy manual. Okay, and that is all of it works with inside the big fences. Now I'm looking at this little area and how do we work. Um, what about uh, what about a whistleblower policy? What about discrimination in the workplace based on gender? What about all those issues that you deal with at the uh, policy level? And the policies in my manual here in the United States are different than the ones I had in Kenya when I was serving there. But uh, those policies all were inside of the board policy manual. Let's talk about the CEO and what they're supposed to do. Let's get off the board and maybe some of you will wake up. Uh, determine strategies within policy fences. So I know where the fences are now. Now I say they've told me the goal, but they don't tell me the strategy. How am I supposed to get that accomplished is how I work with my administrative staff now that I have the goal. Then I hire, manage, motivate, and fire everybody else. A board can't come to me and say, I don't like this guy. You need to get rid of him. Well, they can say that, but that doesn't mean I will. Uh, because they only have one person that they supervise, and that's me. And then I'm responsible for everything else. Now, if I staff aren't any good and we're not getting our goals accomplished and we're breaking policies, I may get fired, but they cannot come in and manage other people. Because if they do, those people are going to be loyal to the board instead of loyal to me. I was on a college board, and they had all the cabinet members' salaries set by the board. I said, no, because if the board's setting the salaries for these uh, senior staff, then who are they going to be loyal to? They're going to be trying to keep the board happy. They need to be working under the administration. So the board has one person that they supervise, hire, and manage. And CEO does everything else. I have their obligation to develop, fund, and supervise the budget. So I get together the budget, working with my team at the hospital, and we present that to the board, and the board approves it. They can change it or whatever. We get a budget now that we're working within, and then the board is going to look over my shoulder to make sure we're staying inside that budget. And so I'm supervising, but they're holding it accountable. They, I implement the strategy that we've developed. I monitor and report progress to the board, develop and enforce administrative policies, whatever those need to be. 
non-voting ex-officio member of the board. I have a full voice, voice in the board, mem- board meeting, but I do not uh, in any way uh, vote. They do that. And then I'm a spokesperson for the organization. So other duties is maybe outlined by the board policy manual. So the CEO has a job description, very clear what they're supposed to do. It's often in the board policy manual, and, of course, I have a copy myself. So the board acts as a group. The chief executive or the CEO acts as an individual. The board is forever. I'm temporary. Uh, You may be temporary. Some other missionary take your place. Uh, The board is part-time. The chief executive is Uh, full-time. They have no staff. I have all the staff. Ultimate responsibilities. The board, I have a limited, immediate responsibility. The CEO is a professional and expert. The board is not uh, the board is volunteer. Usually the CEO is paid, and they see only in part, and you're in the midst of everything every day. CEO board relationship. I'm going to skip this because we're going to run out of time because we've kind of covered it. So I talked about what we – I'm going to give you a sample of this, and we're going to move on to another slide. But here's a sample of board policies in that board policy manual. What he, they say on staff treatment, with respect to treatment of paid and volunteer staff, the CEO may not cause or allow conditions which are inhumane, unfair, or undignified. You see this broad language? That's what the board does. Accordingly, he may not discriminate among employees other than on clearly job-related individual performance or job qualifications. Fail to take reasonable steps to protect staff from unsafe or unhealthy conditions. Discriminate against any staff member for expressing an ethical dissent. Communication and counsel of the board. Respect to providing information and counsel of the board, the CMA may not permit the board to be uninformed about matters essential to carrying out its policy duties. So you see that this, and there is boilerplate language that deals with this, but what happens is you come down and say, okay, do you agree with this statement in the boilerplate language? Is this important for us? What do we need to add that's not there? But these type of things help them uh, to do their job and put together a board policy manual. So what kind of CEO do you need? And uh, how do you pick one? CEO should be visionary, uh, and that's very important. Now, on the other side of that, you've got to have somebody who can do the administration as well. And as you well know, it's difficult to find visionaries and good administrators. But uh, those organizational skills are important. Sometimes you can get by without great organizational skills if you have a good person next to them that has them. But best of all, for a CEO, when you're looking for one in your organization, you want somebody that has both the vision. Uh, without a vision, the people perish, the mission perishes. Uh, this person sees further down the path. Where do we need to go? What do we need to be about? And it's helping the board to understand that. They have the organizational skills, though, then to accomplish the mission. You want somebody, if possible, who has some charisma that can motivate people, that uh, inspire them and help them to become better at what they do. And that's what I mean by by charisma, that it's not just telling them what to do, but uh, somebody said uh, charisma is uh, getting people to do what they don't want to do and like it. That's charisma. And uh, you you, you have the ability to inspire people, and that's part of being a good leader is to inspire people. Have problem-solving skills. And being a medical missionary is dealing with one problem after another, isn't it? There's not enough oxygen. There's not enough money. There's, you know, somebody didn't show up for work today. We've got this, you know, truck just turned over. Twenty people came in the ER. What are we going to do about it? You know, these type of things. And so you need somebody who's who's can work well under pressure. Uh, you want somebody that has good people skills because much of what you do is solving problems and working with people. And you want somebody with spiritual maturity, somebody who's respected uh, spiritually, uh, that is being guided by God, that has a spiritual maturity that's recognized within your organization. Now, are you going to get everything from everybody that you're ever going to put in that position? See, one of the things that's difficult on the mission field, and you don't have to explain it to me, is there's a limited application pool for this job, right? It's not exactly like you're going to send a job description back to the states and, you know, we're looking for somebody to be the CEO of our organization. Often you have a group of missionaries working together, and one of them is going to have to be in charge, and uh, somebody may not have all the skills. But one of the things to understand is what those skills are and how can we help them get them. What training do we need? I remember when I was moving up in, in, into, into more responsibility, the Christian Medical and Dental Association does uh, continuing medical and dental education for Christian doctors, you know, missionary doctors in Kenya and Thailand. They brought somebody in that taught supervision and management. It was wonderful because I knew nothing. 
I sit in there and try to write down every word he said uh, and took it back and applied it and then began to read because I knew there was so much I needed to know. I had not had this training. I could give you the Krebs cycle, but I didn't know how to manage people and, uh, and how to put good systems in place. Uh, is it a national or missionary? It can be either. Oftentimes, if there's not a good national, it falls to the missionary. And uh, one of the, the goals in any situation is to work yourself out of a job over a period of time. If there's not somebody with the capability uh, that you help uh, find that person or get them the training that they need to do it. Should have a job description. I'm not going to go through this except to say a good job description has a number of parts to it. The purpose, what is the purpose of this job? Uh, what is the responsibilities? Uh, you know, and I've listed this is one of the job descriptions for one of my staff. Directly responsible to, who are you responsible to? Directly responsible for, and uh, minimum required qualifications. I've made out this job description. I'm looking for this person. Here's what they must be able to do, and then here are some additional desirable qualifications that I'd like to see in that job. So it's, it's got six parts to it, purpose, responsibilities, responsible to, responsible for, minimum required qualifications, and additional desirable qualifications. And that everybody in your organization should have a job description so they know what it is. Um, let's talk about hiring. Let's get down into practical stuff. Don't you love hiring a rotten employee? Has anybody ever hired a rotten employee that's just, yeah, I have two. And... Uh, I, a few years ago, I developed this concept I hadn't seen anywhere else that I can remember called the ABCs of, of hiring. And uh, all of us would like to have an A employee. And what do I mean by an A employee? An A employee is an innovator. They are a problem solver. They're knowledgeable. They're organized. They're a leader. Uh, they, they know more uh, about what's going on than you do. Uh, because they really know their area. Your job is easier because they're there. It's rare that they're going to be coming to you with some problem that needs to be solved because they can solve the problem. And uh, they have vision, they have organizational skills, and they're on their way up in the organization. Sometimes you hire somebody and you don't see that initially at a low-level position. You think, wow, and it starts to come up. That's an A employee. I'm in the midst of hiring a, a, a vice president for campus and community ministries. I'm looking for an A employee. No B employees need to apply uh, because I, need, I don't have time to go do their job. I need somebody who's going to take the ball and run. It's the type of person that we're going to agree on goals and objectives, and they're going to go get them done. And uh, if they have problems, they'll, you know, I'll meet with them regularly, have regular supervision. If they've got problems, I'll be happy to help them. But I'm not looking over their shoulder all the time. A B employee... They do a good job, not a real innovator. They're not a big problem solver. They can take care of routine things. Big problems kind of stump them. You have to step in some, but you, but uh, you know, because they can't solve all the messes that are out there. And so you're going to have to spend more time and invest more effort into them if you're their supervisor, uh, because they're not an A employee. They're a B employee. But you know, you're glad you have them. You wouldn't fire them. Now, C employee, they're mediocre. They don't do the job particularly well, but they don't do it bad enough to fire them either. Some days you wish you could fire them, but they're just not that bad. And uh, they generate messes. They just don't know. Not, it's not a matter of not knowing how to clean them up. They make them. Okay? You know who I'm talking about. you got pictures in your mind, don't you? And, 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 and you're thinking, oh, my, they just don't have good judgment. Uh, you know, they may try hard, they, they may lack self-discipline, but they're, they're just average. And if you had your druthers, some days you think, man, they're more work than they're worth. But it's not that they're rebellious. It's not that they are out to break the rules. It's not that they don't try. They're just not that good. They're mediocre at best. Then you have D employees. They're pretty easy. They're so bad, you're justified in firing them. And uh, you made a bad mistake in hiring. We're going to talk about how to fire people in a few minutes. And uh, a surefire way that uh, helps you fire people. Then you have F employees. Pray you never have an F employee. Because F employees, they want your job. And they're going to they're gonna challenge your authority. They're going to polarize your staff. They're going to try to take over your institution. Uh, they think they know how to do it better than you do. Uh, they're charismatic, they're a leader, and they hate your guts. Anybody ever had one of those? Yes. Got you got one now. They will keep you up at night 
And uh, I've had a couple of those in my career, and you do not want an F employee. And um, uh, they're people that are very difficult to get rid of. They have, uh, they have a following among your staff and uh, causing all sorts of problems. So F employees are your worst nightmare and very difficult to deal with but have to be dealt with. Let's talk about management styles. A employees, you want to get them involved in your strategic planning. They're the ones who come up with the great ideas. They're going to be your department head or the vice president of this or the director of this area. Uh, you want to turn them loose. You don't want to be micromanaging them. You want to agree on a set of goals, turn them loose, and give them what they need to get the job done. And uh, they're going to make you look good make your life easy. You give them the authority. You give them the resources. That's why you want to hire A employees, uh, because they'll make your job easy. I, uh, uh, 10, 12 years ago, hired one of my board members when he rotated off, Sam Malin. Sam's here speaking. Uh, he's an oral surgeon. Sam is A-plus employee. Uh, I don't even I don't even meet with Sam. I mean, he just runs our global health outreach program, and he's always got some great new idea and making it happen. A great administrator, uh, you know. I just turned him loose, gave him the authority, try to help him with resources, and if there occasionally problem comes up, he may need my help with, but it's pretty rare. So that um, one of the thing I one of the things I think about management. And everybody has their own management style, but my management style is very much like I practice medicine. And I think for a lot of us in healthcare professions, it's a style that's easy to adopt. Uh, what do I mean by that? I am I don't like committees, it, or committees just waste time. Committees help you find the lowest common denominator that everybody agrees on, and it's not the way to oftentimes have good leadership. Now that doesn't mean you don't get input, but how do you make uh, you know as a physician if I'm taking care of a patient at bedside and we got a problem, how do I make a decision? I get key people that need to have some input on this at the bedside, we look at the problem and we make a decision and we go ahead. That's how I never want me to be the choke point of the organization going forward. So the way we work at CMDA, the way I worked at Tenwick is, okay, we got an issue here. Let's get the key people that we need to have input from. Let's get together. Let's discuss this and make a decision right here on the spot. My door's open. Come on in. Let's get on the phone, call you up. Let's talk about this. And let's get th keep things moving. Okay, and uh, that's not committee it to death. Every time you have a committee meeting, you're wasting 10 people's time or eight or ever how many on that committee trying to get to a decision. You know, another little secret I'll tell you, have your meeting standing up. <laughs> It'll take you one-fourth the time. Let's don't sit down. Let's just stand up, make this decision, and we'll move on. So... Because one of the things you want to do is maximize your time and maximize everybody else's time. You only have so much of it, so how can we move forward? Now, you know, at CMDA, we have one, one senior staff meeting every month. But we do not give reports at the staff meeting. That's a waste of time. Let's all talk about what's going on in our department. That will eat up two hours real quick, won't it? So we have a one-page outline that you fill out to give a report and circulate it before the meeting. Here's what's going well. Here's not what's going well. There are problems that I have, and here's my plans. It's got to be one page or less for my department, my area. And, uh, and we circulate to everybody. It takes you a minute to read it versus five or ten minutes for a presentation. And before we walk into the meeting, everybody knows where everybody else is. Now, we may have a problem that we need a lot of input on. We may bring that up. It's a it's organizational-wide issue. But we're going to limit it to an hour. I, I have a rule. We don't have meetings for more than an hour. If we have one, it's not for more than an hour. I don't care what meeting it is. I can't say we've always achieved that, but 99% of the time we do. So setting expectations of how your management style is going to help move the organization forward. My management style may not be the same as yours. I'm just giving you a sample of it. But as busy as you are, you better find one that's efficient because it's going to eat you up. Attracting the right staff. We talked about how important having the right staff is. You've got to create a sense of family. How do you do that? It's not, it, it, first of all, you need to know what you're supposed to do, how you're going to be evaluated, and, uh, and, and the rest of it. But when we're bringing on new staff and hiring them, let me give you our three C's of how I do it. First of all, we look at uh, character. That's interesting. It's not, it's not competence. We first look at character. I want people of integrity. 
And I often can figure that out by how they've done every place else they've been. Secondly, I, want, I look at the whole area of, of um, chemistry. I don't want any F employees. Remember that? So I want to know how they're going to fit in the family. Because when I, when I have people come, I say this to them when we interview them. I say, I don't have a job to offer you. Uh, I have a calling. God needs to call you here. We need to sense that, and you need to sense that. And it's not a matter of we're hiring you. We're asking you to join our family. And that's a bigger deal than getting a job. And so when I have, like last week, we had somebody in looking at this position. I not only interviewed them, I had every one of my senior staff interview them. Why? Because I'm going to ask my senior staff, what do you think about this person? Now, this is a high-level person. I wouldn't do this with low-level people. But if it was a low-level person, I might have everybody in the department talk to them individually because they're going to get adopted into the family. And if I want to have this sense of family, we have to have a sense of unity and purpose. Secondly, to create a sense of family, what do you remember about family? Special vacations, special events, fun, you know, those warm memories you have of family. We work our tails off having fun. All right, I'll tell you a secret. We have areas on the website I would never let you into because it's pictures of our parties and the fun that we have together. Uh, and we do that because we work extremely hard, but we're always looking for an excuse to build camaraderie and have fun. When I turned 50 and my associate director, Gene Rudd, turned 50 at CMD, they had a 50s party for us. Staff do all this stuff. You know, we just turn them loose. And so everybody dressed up like the 50s. We had waiters and waitresses on roller skates. We had milkshakes, and we had a bar, and we had 45 records playing, and we had Elvis impersonator, and we had a ball. Just, you know, had a great time. We'll do that, I don't know, seven or eight times a year for some excuse. You come to our Christmas party, and we always play some fun game. I remember one year it was Hollywood Squares, and they didn't, uh, staff organized this, didn't tell them. They handled nine people a bag with a costume in it. You had to go in the other room, come out as a different character. We had Dolly Parton there. We had Barney Fife. And, uh, you know, we played. The, it was just hilarious. Just lots of fun. You're looking for those opportunities to create a sense of family. And in the workplace, even on the mission field, what can you do to, to have fun with your staff? Even 400 people in a hospital. There's ways you can do that. You want to have uh, tangible benefits. Uh, of course, you pay people as best you can. Often it's not as much as they're deserved. Uh, but do the best you can to put in place the type of benefits people need. Intangible benefits of, uh, you know, it's not just a matter of having fun. People, you know, I'm concerned about my staff. God has entrusted every one of them to me. It's a stewardship responsibility. If they're sick, I'm going to be visiting them in the hospital. If they're having marriage problems, I may be talking to them about them. Uh, not as a boss, but as a friend, because there are a lot of intangible benefits because we're family and we take care of each other. Uh, you know, one of my staff had his wife die it's been a number of years ago, <coughs> chronic disease, and finally died. One of my staff and I hauled, hauled her body all the way from Tennessee to Indiana to the, to the funeral parlor there in the back of our van. It was an opportunity to demonstrate what family was all about. I'm not saying you need to do that, but, I mean, that's the type of thing you do. You want to motivate them. And I can't get into motivation. There's a lot of stuff there. But how do you motivate people to do well? Standards of performance. <coughs> Somewhere some water. Um, standards of performance are what you do with your job description. Standards of performance tell employees how they're doing their job. It's not just what they're supposed to do. But am I doing a good job? And how do you do that? You have their list of duties, and then you answer this question for everything on that list of responsibilities. I will have done this well when? How do we measure this? How do we know that we've done a good job at this duty? I've done it satisfactorily when such and such. And then you put some measurable, qualifiable, quantitative goals on there. You do that every year. And um, you may have more than one standard or duty for each of the uh, duties that have uh, per duty. So you put that. It's measurable. It's checkable. And you agree on them together. 
So what I do is hand, you know, we're drawing up standards of performance for an employee. We just say, take your job description. I want you to work on this, and here's how we draw up standards. And they work on it. We sit down and talk about it and say, now, this one's really not quantifiable. Is this one, let's say I'm talking to an assistant, and they're dealing with receipts. Okay, they work in the finance department. And so we agree that one of the things that's really important is good membership services. So I, you know, they're over that area. So how am I going to know I've done good? Well, when I have a turnaround on a receipt for a gift within 72 hours of 95% of the gifts given to CMDA, that's a measurable standard. And at the end of the year, we can sit down and say, how are you doing on that? Uh, well, you know, I'm act- we're actually exceeding it. We had 99%. Or no, we're not there. It's taken us four days instead of three days. It's, it, it's a way for people to have specific ways they know they're doing their jobs well. In a nursing situation, it may be the meds are given on time. Within this time period, we've gotten our meds given, and we're doing this you know, correctly this much of the time or whatever. But it's something that actually puts quantification so that you can look at them and they can look at themselves and say, yes, I'm doing a good job. You may change the standard. What gets measured gets done. Do you know that? I remember when we were doing community health work and uh, we printed uh, outputs in our newspaper we sent out to all our community health helpers so they could compare themselves to others and how they were doing, how many home visits, how many new fireplaces, how many latrines were getting dug and this type of thing. We didn't hit them over the head. It you just everybody knew whether they were working or not. Well, I remember we had the big debate on whether we put spiritual goals in there, how many people they witnessed to and how many people they won to the Lord. And we had a big debate over it. Uh, whether you should be quantificating, you know, quantifying um, uh, spiritual issues. And I came back to it and said, you know, if we measure it, it'll get done. And it's true. If you're going to be measured on something, you know, what's, when you were in school, you wanted to know the professor to tell you what? What was going to be on the exam, right? Because you wanted to do well. And so people want to do well, and if you measure things, they get done. So how can you measure it? Annual evaluations, uh, it's a time when you sit down. A- annual evaluations is not when you address problems. Annual evaluations is when you have the opportunity to give kudos, have an opportunity to sit down with people and decide what your new standards are, where you're heading, uh, you're talk about how you can better develop them as an employee, maybe some more education. It's a time to sit down and talk about their performance. They do a self-evaluation, you do evaluation, you sit down and talk about it. Let's talk about discipline techniques, and we're running out of time. One of the things with discipline techniques is, first of all, people need to know what the standard is, and that's where a staff policy manual really helps. If you've got it in writing, this is what we expect, this is how we act. It can be very specific things. It can be broad things. We treat other staff members with respect. We do this. We do that. So there is a set of expectations that everyone knows in the office. Here are our values. Here's how we act. And uh, in those issues, uh, here's here's the standards we've set for your job, and, and perhaps you're not meeting them. So when you sit down with someone and there's a problem, I encourage you first of all to deal with problems when they're small. Discipline problems are just like cancer; you're much better dealing with them when they're easy to cut out. And the tendency in missions, especially with other missionaries, is, well, maybe it'll get better. We used to say on the field when I was in Kenya, you could tell the missionaries that had the most problems because they had been on the most stations on the field, right? Because they kept getting transferred because there was a problem. Somebody couldn't get along with somebody, so we transferred them to another station. Then they had problems with that person. And the problem was nobody had ever dealt with it and confronted it. And it's true in whatever you're doing. So try to deal with things when they're small. Sit down with people and ask it in an open-ended way. First of all, I would say with all my staff members, you know, I've seen some of these good things that you're doing, and I just want to say thank you. But I'm really concerned about this problem with you showing up to, late to work on time. Is there some reason for that that I need to understand, something that's impeding you getting here? So I would ask an open question to give them an opportunity to, first of all, criticize themselves, or maybe their watch isn't working, or maybe somebody's sick in the family, or maybe the baby's crying all night. I don't know what's going on. It may not be they don't want to do this, uh, you know, to cause this problem, but they have something that's affecting them. The car keeps breaking down. So I ask an open-ended question to give them an opportunity to deal with it. Um, and, and then we come to an understanding and a clear expectation of what the expectations are and how we can solve the problems. And then I write something and put it in their file. Because if you have a discipline meeting, there should be something in writing after every meeting. If they're still having problems, then I'm going to do remediation. Remediation is the next step. 
and remediation, I meet with them and say, you know, we've talked about this problem, and it seems like we haven't been able to resolve it. And so I want to be very clear what my expectations are with you. And, in fact, I'm putting it in writing. It's right here. And here's the time frame we have to deal with this. And, uh, you know, in the next three weeks, I'm expecting this, and this is what I'm looking for. And so it's very clear. I'm going to put there, and that's remediation. They know that this is the step before something more serious happens. Because now we have something in writing that we're agreeing to. It's not just uh, we sit together and had a meeting. And third is uh, we get to the point and, you know, remediation, there may be more than one step to it. Uh, but the, the third thing is how do you fire somebody? Let me give you a surefire way to fire somebody. And I've had, I've had to fire people and they thought, thanked me after I did it. The way I approach firing is I'll set someone down, call them in. Um, if it's somebody from the opposite sex, I'll usually have somebody else in the room with me. Uh, and sometimes in discipline situations, it's good to, to have a witness there, a uh, supervisor of their department or whatever, uh, to witness what's happening. But uh, I usually approach it like this. First thing I say to them is, I need to apologize to you. Because I made a mistake in judgment. I hired you for a job that you're not able to do. And it's true. I have made a serious mistake. I've hired somebody who either they didn't have the will, they didn't have the skill, they didn't have whatever to do this job. And I should have seen that before they came in. And I didn't. And so what I do is take the responsibility for what I'm going to have to do. At that point, telling somebody they're lousy, they're, they're lazy, or whatever is not going to accomplish anything. And so the first thing I do is apologize them for making a mistake because I have hired somebody who could not do this job. And then uh, tell them very clearly and frankly, because of that and the inability to do that, we're going to have to let you go. And, uh, and then dealing with that. I tend to be very generous when letting people go. Uh, I want to go and go the second mile. Uh, I, would, I don't want to uh, hurt their family any more than I have to. doesn't mean I don't deal with it, but I may say to them, okay, and, you know, we're, we're going to let you go. It's not good to keep people you're firing around in the organization, and so we need to get this packed up, to, uh, and here's the time limit, and here's how we're going to do it. I want to let you know we're going to give you a month's severance pay. We're going to give you some money. If you want to apply for unemployment benefits, we'll, we'll be happy to facilitate that, whatever. But you want to leave with a good taste in the mouth that you, you have done the proper thing. You haven't just blown up and fired somebody. You're very concerned about them as an individual, even though they cannot continue to work for you, and you're trying to deal with their needs uh, because the thing you don't want to happen, and it may happen anyway, is people go out mad and upset at you um, for what's happened. And termination is painful enough as it is. You often talk about what I'm going to say on your job description. I mean, a, a job, um, uh, yeah, whatever that word is, reference. What I'm going to do about a reference and we, the way we deal with it in this country is we'll say if somebody calls, we'll be happy to give them information about your time of employment here and when you left. And, uh, and uh, usually we don't say any more than that because of legal issues in this country. Uh, but people know pretty quick that you're not giving a glowing reference for this person. Um, so, but that sometimes needs to be put on the table and how you're going to deal with it. Uh, annual evaluation, opportunity to give kudos, self-evaluation. We have them do it, so they're the ones seeing where they're doing well and not doing well. Evaluations by their immediate supervisor. We do them in December, November, December every year. We're doing our lower-level staff in November. I do all my senior staff in December, and uh, that goes into their file. And it's something, you know, people don't look forward to the work, but they, they look forward to the time to get together and talk about it. And both of us sign it, and it goes into their file. Uh, spiritual ministry, we're going to finish with this. And because uh, we're out of time, uh, prioritize it in your hospital. What uh, gets measured gets done. What gets prioritized gets done first. And uh, and if you don't prioritize spiritual ministry, it won't happen. You need to plan it, just like you do strategic planning for everything else. You need to elevate it. One of the lessons I learned from my mentor, Dr. Sturry, he hired the the chief chaplain and he put him on the senior management committee. You know why? Because every decision that was made in that hospital, he wanted to have somebody thinking about what's the implications for our spiritual ministry. It also set 
a standard that this is important, this person's in the top management tier uh, as the senior chaplain. Participate in it. Nothing works better than you actually doing it and getting others to do it with you. Uh, Recruit the right people. You need a leader. You need an A employee to make that area happen. Uh, You need to equip them, give them the tools they need. It may be tracks, it may be Bibles, it may be a computer for follow-up of data, you know, people who made decisions. You need to measure it. We've already talked about that, uh, how we do it, how many people have made recommitments to Christ, how many new converts this year. It gives you an opportunity to give two dose. You need to evaluate it. You sit down every so often and say what's going well, what's not going well. Uh, You treat this aspect of your ministry just like you treat other aspects of your ministry, and then you integrate it into everything you do. One of the things you want to do is not have just the chaplains doing all the spiritual ministry. You want every person in your facility or your program involved in ministry. So it may involve training, teaching, opportunities, holding them accountable, showing them how it's done, uh, but you want to integrate it into every aspect of what you do. That's very quick, but we're out of time. Let me tell you where you can get a lot more information. If you go to cmda.org, go to the Center for Medical Missions. It's under the Mission button. And I have put together a series of articles that we have written over the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. And in there, it goes through all, in a lot more detail, management and administration for missionaries. And medical missionaries, and uh, and it deals with a wide range of topics, and we've now compiled that into an electronic book. It's free. You can download it. It's a PDF and uh, take you through that in a lot more detail we've done today. I'll be available for questions. I apologize. We haven't had more time for questions as a group, but I'll stay around as long as you do. And uh, God bless you. Go be good managers because it helps build the kingdom. God bless.